So with Rex, if you're just joining us, I welcome you. I'm Joel. It's an absolute joy to open God's life-giving word this morning. Today we're coming to the end of the book of James. We're going to chapter 5 starting in verse 13. And James is about to warn us. He's been doing this the whole book. We're all in danger. That each and every one of us are only one short step away from wandering and losing ourselves. There's actually a scene in C.S. Lewis's book, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that kind of captures this. In this story, there's this boy, he's named Eustace, and he gets into trouble by wandering off from his friends. And he finds, as he's out there, a bracelet, and he's so charmed by this bracelet that he decides to take it, he decides to put it on, and then he falls asleep thinking greedy thoughts. And then he wakes up later and his arm is hurting. And his arm is swollen. Why? Because he's become a dragon. The bracelet is pinching his arm and he begins to weep. His arm hurts. He's a dragon. He's now cut off from humanity. He lives like this for some time. And then one day a lion approaches him. And even though he's a fire-breathing dragon, he's actually afraid of this lion. You know why? Because this lion is Aslan. And Aslan is C.S. Lewis's depiction of the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus himself. And this lion leads Eustace to a pool, and he tells Eustace to undress himself. Eustace thinks for a minute, he's like, oh, uh, some, some reptiles, they shed their skin. And so he begins to peel off and sheds a whole layer of reptile skin, but he sees he's still a dragon. So he does it once again. He begins to peel off, and he does it again, and he remains a dragon each and every time. To no avail, he is stuck as a dragon, and it all started with his wandering. He needs outside help, like we all do. Listen to what Eustace describes next. Then the lion said, and I don't know if it spoke, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay down flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I had thought it went right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab from a sore place, it hurts like billy-o, but it's just fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd ever been. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that very much, for I was tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know what it feels like to have Jesus set you free and make you brand new. But here's the thing, we're still ever prone to relapses, and we need continual access to the cure. You hear about this with Eustace later on. He's not perfect from that moment on. So where can that cure be found? 
only in the community that James is about to describe, the church. James affirms that we have all the resources to continue the human recovery process. Friends, do you want to be made happy and whole in him? Well, let's invite the Lion of the tribe of Judah and then read this text. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we welcome you into this space right now. We welcome you into our lives and we ask that as we hear your word, that you will speak to us by your spirit. Father, we show us wonderful things from your word. Show us Jesus, show us ourselves and remind us of the cure of the gospel. Leave none of us unchanged. We pray in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Now hear the word of our God from James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. As I come to the end of James, I've got to admit, I, I always find it a bit strange it's like you finish verse 20 and suddenly you find yourself, you're standing outside and I look back and I'm like, I didn't realize that was the exit, James. I mean, James, did you mean to end your letter this way? I mean, apostles Peter and Paul and others, they give us at least a blessing, you know, grace to you and peace. James, we get to the end of the letter and we don't get a farewell, no thanks for reading. <laughs> Why is that? It's because of his primary concern all along. James has written to us a call to action from the get-go. It begins with, count it all joy when you face trials of many kind. And then we're off running. Pure religion means wise action in a world of trouble. We are to adopt practices. That's James, his call to action. Adopt practices that are the product of faith that functions. We're constantly to be seeking God for wisdom, because we're prone to wander. Suffering, sickness, and sin, as James describes here, can trip any one of us up. Fittingly, James ends with a call to action. Pray when you're suffering. Praise when you're cheerful. Pray over sickness. Pray over sin. Pursue the wanderer. We are to be an active community of concern. And let's be real. This world is beating the living daylights out of a whole lot of us. Why is that? Because of what James told us in chapter 4 about Satan. This whole world lies under the power of the evil one. 
you're joining us and you're a not yet Christian, this is what our Bible teaches. Suffering, sickness, and sin are all the stuff of Satan. Who's Satan, Joel? Satan is the most miserable creature in the entire cosmos. God cast him down, and he is God's number one enemy. And Satan, the most miserable creature ever, lives to make you as miserable as himself. Why? Because we are precious to God. We are the ones made in God's image. The Bible actually describes Satan as a sneaky servant, serpent, even as a dragon. And we came under his power when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled, joined in his rebellion. He tricked humanity and left us unhappy, unhealthy, and unholy, and ever becoming more and more like him. Wonderfully, the good news of the gospel, yes, the bad news is that bad, so the good news is this good. God in his mercy sent his son to begin the great human rescue mission. And Jesus crushed the head of the serpent at Calvary's cross and was raised up in glory. But the cross isn't the end of the story. The battle continues, right? Why? Because Father God privileged us to participate in the great human rescue mission. More souls to steal from Satan and we get to participate. Incredibly, do you think this is wonderful? The church gets included in the Satan stomp. Romans 16, 20. Why? I don't really know other than God gets more glory when we join in on the victory. And how are we to participate? This is what James is getting at. Through prayer, and then he concludes with pursuit. Seven times here at the end of this book, James calls us to pray. Because prayer is a means of God's grace where we are healed and we can bring healing to the nations. We saw that last week as we talked about prayer's possibilities and prayer's power. Today we're going to consider further. First, prayer's power to purge. Then, the posture of persevering prayer. And then third, the purposeful pursuit of pilgrims. Anyone who can say all that ten times fast gets a prize at the end of the service. I want to review last week's verses because this passage has actually been misused and abused many times. And I want us to have total clarity about what James means here. And come talk to me or Rex afterwards if you still have questions. James actually begins with this series of questions to unmask us. We're all messed up. We're all walking wounded. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Oh, and then he says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And I want to just say, duh, James. I know this. If I'm in trouble, I have to pray. I'm supposed to be thankful when God gives me good stuff. <laughs> James knows that both situations are actually trials. We're tempted to turn inward instead of upward and outward since the fall. Remember the rich man, poor man dynamic he started this book off with? When we suffer, we're tempted to grumble. When we're blessed, we tend to be ungrateful. So we need to remember to turn upwards to God in prayer upwards when good things happen in praise. And next James asks, is there anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. When you're really sick, this is what James is saying. James is expecting you to say, I am so happy that Heart City has a ministry of healing. I want you guys to see that Rex and I are actually kind of like the MASH unit. 
Okay, does anybody remember that TV show, MASH? A few people. It stood for the Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. There were trained doctors who were deployed to help the wounded who were near the battlefield front lines. Me and Rex show, come in with a tent, tabernacle with you in that battle scene. That's what James is describing here, that we will come to you in your need and we'll pray over you, we'll anoint you with oil. Now the oil is not magic, but it does symbolize the touch of God. You're belonging to him, but it's actually not the oil. It's the prayer of faith that produces results. Do you see that here? The prayer of faith often produces healing to sick people. And then I noted last week that James, he also expects something we may not expect, think would be proper to this scene. He expects confession of sins. Now I want to repeat what I said last week. If you are sick, it is not necessarily a result of your having sinned or your sinning. If you are sick, it's not the result necessarily of your being in sin. Notice James says, if he has committed sins. We don't assume sickness because some, or someone has sinned because of sickness. That's how this text has been abused by many. What did Jesus say about the blind man when the disciples asked? It was not because of his sin he was born blind. No. Think about Job. It's not his sin. So while we don't assume sin, at the same time, James says we need to consider the possibility when we're sick. Paul told the Corinthians that many of them had become sick and even died. Why? Because they were sinning. Sometimes our swollen arm is the result of our having sinned, taken something to our person we shouldn't have. Sickness should prompt us to ask the question, do I have sins to confess? Why? Because sin poses a greater danger to us than sickness. Sometimes God will permit sickness in our body to push us to purge sin in our souls. But actually this week, I want to reverse the order. We talked about that last week. Sometimes sickness precedes sin. You know what I'm talking about. Have you ever gotten sick? Suddenly you get kind of mean and irritable. Someone comes to help you. I work in the hospital. I see this all the time. Start grumbling. Our sickness can actually reveal what we're usually able to hide pretty well. And it's at that point we can discover prayer's power to purge unseen sin, to get healing that we didn't even know we needed, to be further undragoned, to watch another deeper layer of ugliness get removed from us by Jesus Christ as we go to him in prayer. We can confess and find that the prayer of faith has the power to purge the greater disease, our soul sickness. Notice that there's actually no promise of physical healing here, though that can happen. Ask Sandy, her testimony from last month. But here's the good thing. We have a guarantee of spiritual healing, a guarantee of healing spiritually. We have the promise that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. The word here is sozo in the Greek. It means salvation. The Lord will raise him up, egero. It's actually a word for resurrection. And he will be forgiven. Forgiveness comes when we pray. That's the good news. So while we lay on our backs helplessly, Jesus begins to undress us, to unpeel away the remaining serpent skin. We're purged of our false self, 
and we become even more and more rehumanized. Our true self can come out. Now, wonderfully, James says, you don't actually have to catch a cold to be purged. All right? You don't have to get sick. Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. We can get healing by confessing our sins to one another. Last week, I encouraged the men here to find a trusted Christian brother that you could share a sin with. I encouraged the women to find a trusted, spiritually mature sister in Christ. And for you to pull back a fig leaf, to admit a sin, to expose yourself, yes, and then ask them to pray for you and see what happens. And I'm so thankful for a couple brothers who committed to do this with and for me. I've actually been seeing renewal in my life from their prayers and also some things making stuff show up so I can confess it. This is a good thing. But I want us to see we also have an opportunity to go deeper, to become better become a community of concern. I, but I think we first need to appropriate something about our community. Look ahead to verse 19. Notice James addresses us. It's just, just a word. He concludes by addressing us as brothers. The word's actually Adelphoic, mean brothers and sisters. James has actually said this 19 times now in this text. Four times each chapter, at least, he's reminding us. Heart City, do you know what our reality is? We walk through these doors and we come in singing Sister Sledge. We are family. I'm the only one singing. We are. We're family, all right? We're not a company. We're not a clique. We're not a social club. Heart City is a forever family in Jesus Christ. And we need to think that way. And let's think that way and be real about what being part of a family means. Father God has bound you together with people you didn't and maybe wouldn't choose to be bound with, right? I get this especially as an older brother. Older children, huh? looking at one right now. Um, did your mom and dad sit you down one day when you're little and say, if we're thinking about having another kid, what do you think? We thought we should ask you because they're going to be real needy. They're going to cry a lot. They're going to be really messy. And when they get big, they're going to annoy you at times. And they're going to take your stuff. And what do you think? And your parents, and your parents ask you what you think about having brothers and sisters. <laughs> yeah, me neither. But even though our brothers and sisters can annoy us. And actually, my sister was teasing me yesterday, my younger sister. We still... We are connected to them. We are bonded, bonded by blood. There's a built-in interdependence. It's same in the church, the same kind of dynamic. We accept one another because we belong together. We're family. We've been joined together in the same baptism. Actually, it's the same blood of Jesus that connects all of us together. This means when we blow it and we're going to annoy one another, we're going to do things. We can go to one another and know that it's not going to end the relationship, like if you're in a club or a clique. No. We can confess what we've done to others, make things right, knowing that our Father is so pleased as He looks down on His children, learning how to make things right, learning how to get along, learning what aggravates one another about things. So my question, have you grumbled about someone here? Have you lied? 
Have you been selfish at times when you saw another brother or sister in need? There's good news. You can go to them, confess your sin, and be healed of that. And as your sibling, your father says, then they have to respond by praying for you and forgiving you. They have to. Daddy says so. Now there's a whole other sermon on the relationship going forward, especially if this sin is bad. Please talk to me or Rex if you have questions, because sometimes significant sins require safeguards going forward. That's a different sermon. But let's rejoice that we can purge any and all sin in our midst as a family and find radical healing here. Two children confessing and praying together has great power as it is working. We can make this a safe space if we actually adopt this and appropriate this, take this into the core of our being. God invites us to experience the peace that his son, our big brother Jesus, died to acquire for us. So let's move on to the posture now of persevering prayer. Verse 17, James brings in an illustration, Old Testament prophet. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. If you take what James is saying, if you take it in, really appropriate, it's going to transform your prayer life. James tells us that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And yes, we can look at Jesus, who is the righteous person praying with us, but James wants us to see that we are righteous when we have the proper posture. He says, remember the Old Testament prophet Elijah? Joel, you and he are more alike than different. Do I believe that? (laughs) That I can see answers to prayer like righteous Elijah? I mean, I find that really incredible because... I immediately think, the first thing in my head when I think Elijah is when the time he went up to King Ahab and he said, Ahab, I'm a prophet of the true God and I challenge all your false prophets of Baal to a contest. Let's see whose God will show up. And I know folks rarely put themselves out there like this myself. I mean, really? Any of you feeling froggy enough to challenge the status quo before our, our ruler, one of our rulers? I mean, so they have this contest. You remember the scene? See who could call down fire from heaven to burn this sacrifice. And you have 450 prophets of Baal and Elijah's all by himself. And they go on and on and on for hours and nothing happens. And Elijah does a one-verse prayer. Fire comes down from heaven. And next, revival. All Israel is gathered there. They see God answer Elijah. They realize they've been worshiping a false idol. And they all fall down crying, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. I'd sure love to see my neighbors do that. After one of my prayers, a one-verse prayer. Wouldn't that be incredible? To be that confident, I can call down fire from heaven and witness all these lost and straying sinners realize the spiritual birth. (laughs) But I'm not Elijah James much as I want that. Oh, but then I remember the next chapter, because he's talking about nature like ours. And you read about Elijah, and now he's discouraged. 
His faith is wavering. He's running for his life. He's frustrated. He says, God, we just put me out of my misery. I'm all alone, all by myself. One minute he's confident. The next minute he's despairing. One minute he is selfless. The next minute he is self-pitying. And I see, oh, Elijah, you remind me of me. (laughs) And then the next thing I realize is that James doesn't actually point to the highlight prayer miracle of Elijah's career. James doesn't point us to his prayer seen in the big public square that brought fire and revival. He doesn't do that. He points us to a prayer first that we don't even have record of. Three and a half years earlier, first time Elijah shows up, he goes and says to Ahab, uh, by the way, it's not going to rain for the next thousand plus days. An instant drop, just like that. But there's no record that he prayed. But we do know he prayed because of what happened. And here's what James is teaching us. Elijah knew his Bible. He knew the promises of God. In Deuteronomy 28:22, God promised to shut the heavens if Israel spurned God. So Elijah looked around at the people. He was grieved by the situation. And he held up this verse in prayer and said, God, you promised. And then he went to Ahab, confident that Father God was going to keep his word. That's how we need to be. Remember, we're part of a family. You parents know what it's like when you make a promise to your children. Dad, you promised me ice cream if I did this. Mom, you promised me this. That's what Elijah did. He said, Father, you promised. You promised you'd do this for me if I asked. You see what a wonderful thing it is to have a a Bible just filled with lots and lots of God's promises. That's why we at Heart City love getting to know our Bibles. There's so many promises here. Let's look at our January verse of the month, what we're meditating on. It's at the bottom of our sermon outline page. Let us recite together, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This verse tells us that prayers of faith, including secret prayers, are going to be rewarded. The Bible tells us everything, all these promises, God has a heavenly vault upstairs filled with all kinds of stuff. And prayer is simply us going to God with his promises, a list of his promises, and saying, Father, we need some of this delivered to this needy place right here. Father God, we need some of that right over here. Father God, these folks here, they need your salvation, your good word. We can go to God, our Father, and say, you've got it up there. I know you have it. And here's what needs it. And friends, folks around us, all around us, are suffering, they're sick, and they're stuck in sin. And we ought to pity them. We ought to pity them. I mean, think about it. Think about our environment right now. You go outside. (laughs) It's like zero degrees and negative 15 right now, right? Is that an environment you can survive in or thrive in? No. Friends, we're living in a spiritual wasteland where humanity can't survive. I think too often we look at mental illness, things like that. We think of cancer. Or we even think of violence we see, like on the news and stuff. 
we think these things are abnormal, that these are the problems. And then we put the band-aids on, we give drugs for mental illness, we do medical procedures for sicknesses, we do, you know, new laws to help us, you know, that's, that's going to solve the problem of violence. All of our maladies are actually normal responses. Normal responses to growing up in a toxic environment. That's how we need to see these things. And we need to go to God in prayer and ask him to pour out new creation life from heaven on this environment we find ourselves in. That's actually what we see in James' second example, Elijah's prayer for rain. In 1 Kings 18, Elijah goes up on a mountain. We don't even hear about the first prayer, so that was done in secret. But now he goes up on a mountain with a servant, prays for rain. This is, again, not public prayer. And I want to read how Elijah's prayer posture is described. This is 1 Kings 18.42. Listen, Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees. I'm not going to do that, but that's what he did. Do you see what James is saying? Wants us to see when he talks about fervent prayer? That's a pretty powerful description. Elijah is crouched over with his head between his knees. It's like he's in labor. And he's waiting for God to give birth to something. Because he keeps getting updates. He's sending his servant off to go look for rain clouds. The servant comes back and says, nothing yet. And what does Elijah do? Goes back down in that position again says, you go back again. I'm going to keep praying. Servant, come back. Anything yet? No. Going at it again. I'm going to keep praying. Go look again. Elijah prays, persevering prayer in this posture, asking God for life-giving rain. Ever seen a woman going through the stages of labor, <laughs> waiting for the baby to find the crown? Friends, Elijah's posture of persevering prayer is what actually we see throughout Scripture. Paul ends Romans, urging the Romans to struggle in prayer. We hear about Epaphras in Colossians 4.12. He is struggling in prayer. The Greek word there is agonizomai. Do you hear the first part of that? Agony. Agony. It's how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane for us. Friends, here's the point. The kind of prayer that produces life-giving, new life into our world is slow, it's persevering, and it's painful. And God jealously wants to change our world, he wants to change the people we care about, the lost in our community. So we set ourselves to the unseen and unglamorous work of persevering prayer. It's hard. And I'm not saying we do this all the time, but there should be seasons in our lives, times we go in our prayer closet and praying, agonizing, trying to give birth in a sense, praying that God will act. I actually read about a teen who committed to prayer walking around his school all summer, praying for his school walked every single day around his school and then said on a whim I'm going to just try and start a Bible study when his school year started and he saw God bring a revival and brought many of his classmates to Jesus Christ. Old Halsby, he says the real heroes of revival 
are the unseen intercessors who pray and pray and pray the years prior to a revival. He compares them to folks who are on their knees boring holes in rocks and letting the Spirit set charges. And then later an evangelist comes along and he sets the fuses off, he lights them all, and everyone's like, whoa, look at what this guy did! And he gets all the credit here on earth, but up in heaven, it's not the evangelist who gets all the credit. It's the rock borers, or boring rocks, the hard, laborious work. Friends, our secret laboring prayers will be rewarded. We come then to the end of James with a call to purposeful pursuit of pilgrims. My friends, if any of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This verse always recalls that him but a grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That writer rightly understood that we're just always just one step away. You may be just one or two steps away from walking away from the truth, walking away from God. To wander away from the truth doesn't mean just simply abandoning orthodoxy. No, truth for James is a way of living that pleases God, that reveals the gospel in our lives. To answer Cain's question, since we're a family, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. Yes, all of us are. I mean, we might expect James, he says, anyone here, go call the elders. No, no, no. Actually, a lot of times the elder is the last person because we show up and we're like the police. That's what people see. No, if anyone wanders, we're all supposed to be our brothers and our sisters keepers because we are family. And this actually really fits this last section. almost seems a little odd, but no. Because earlier James said, when I sin, I go to my brother and I say, I'm ensnared, please help me. Now James says, when I see someone else in sin, I say to them, you're ensnared, I'll help you. It's not a waste of time. Because there's nothing more important in this whole universe, in this whole world, than rescuing a soul that's in danger, that could step off the cliff at any minute. Everyone is going to leave here and walk out and face a world under the power of the evil one. A world ever beating us down or trying to ensnare us in order to destroy us. One of my heroes, a, a, I'm a history guy, a woman named Irina Sendler, almost won the Nobel Prize. She saved 2,500 children from the Nazis. One by one, you know what she did? She'd smuggle them out of sewer pipes. She'd stuff them in suitcases. She'd do all kinds of crazy things. She'd put a really vicious dog in her car so that, you know what, when they got through the checkpoints, you're going to be able to hear a whimpering child when you got this dog trying to eat you if you're a Gestapo guard, right? The Gestapo actually eventually caught Irene. They tortured her. They broke her legs and her feet trying to get her to, to talk. 
She wouldn't give up any names. They drove her off to be executed. Actually, a bunch of friends came and rescued her. They bribed the guards. And then you know what she did? Broken legs and all. <laughs> she went back to saving those who were in danger under a brand new identity. And that's what James wants. He wants us to be passionately concerned for those who are prone to be ensnared by evil. That's what the church is supposed to be, a community of concern. In a world that will snag you and treat you like trash, our community will save you and treat you like treasure. And then invite you to join in on the human rescue mission that God has privileged us to be a part of. And we save souls from death. And we cover a multitude of sins, not because we're the Savior, but because we have been invited to participate in his work. It's our privilege. So I'll ask you, someone come to your mind right now, a straying soul, someone the Spirit of God is impressing on you who needs salvation. They may be one of God's children, but they just don't know it yet. Someone who's wandered from the truth, and you know what? If today was the last day, they would perish in their sins. be a bad ending of the service if I didn't give us some steps here to follow. So in closing, how do we do this, this last part? Pursuing the pilgrims. Well, the first thing is to be persevering in prayer for that person. Laboring long in a secret place. A lot of us know people who have walked away. Maybe they're saved when they're little at a church camp and they haven't. We need to be praying for them often, regularly, all the time, laboring in prayer. You know D.L. Moody, there's legend, he had a hundred names that he carried around his pocket of people who hadn't come to Christ, friends, family, hundred names. At the end of his life, he kept praying for him, praying for him, end of his life, 96 of them had come to saving faith. How would you like a 96% success rate? Then came his memorial service, and those other four showed up at it, and all of them came to faith, were moved at that service. God rewards those who pray or labor in prayer. Secondly, we need to approach people in a spirit of gentleness. Being careful because the days are evil. Galatians 6 says, you who are spiritual, restore them. We need to hate the garment stained by the flesh. We can end up in that sin ourselves very easily. Or we can be prideful, right? There's all kinds of ways we can come at it wrong. We have to be prayerful. We need to approach them in a spirit of gentleness. And lastly, we have to be brave. We have to speak the truth in love. The truth in love. And then we remain patient, playing the long game. We persevere in prayer. We approach in a spirit of gentleness. And lastly, we speak the truth in love. And if you wonder where I got that guidance, it's what Jesus did for Peter. Remember Jesus went to Peter <laughs> that night. He knew Peter was going to start wandering. He said, Peter, Satan demanded to have you. Sift you like we, but don't worry. I've prayed for you. Peter didn't believe he'd stray, right? But then the world came and put a whooping on him that night. He was no match for it. He wandered far from God, wandered as far from Calvary's cross as you could. But in the end, we know how the story ends for Peter. After the resurrection, Jesus is just waiting there on the shore while Peter's out on that boat. 
how Jesus' heart must have leapt for joy when he saw Peter couldn't even wait. He jumps out of the boat and swam to Jesus. So eager he was. As happy as Peter was, how much happier was Jesus? We can be sure that every strange sheep that we would bring back will produce the same joy for our loving Savior who we want to delight, who delights in us, and our Father. He's going to call us to grab the robe, the ring, the fatted calf, and we're going to throw the grandest of all parties, one that even the angels join in. They can't wait. They love this too. They love this action because there's nothing better in the whole world when that lost sheep is brought home. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we want to thank you for, for James, <laughs> this bottomless well of truth, and that you've shown us the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, who seeks and saves the lost. We thank you for these final words today, which encourage us to come to you as those prone to wander. And we ask that our eyes will be open to see how we fail to love you and our neighbors. <sighs> Heal us, Lord, as we confess our sins and as we intercede for one another. We ask you to remind us by your spirit and through your word that as we feast on the benefits that you've so graciously given us, that we will be moved to reach out to those who have strayed. Give us hearts to intercede, love to reach out, gentleness to restore, courage to correct, and joy to celebrate with the holy angels when you bring that wanderer back. Lord, we ask you to do what you've promised and bring all the strangers home. And Lord, bring all of us home. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.